Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome back to our final podcast on the book of Esther. We have been drawn into a story that's filled with irony, and yet we have been compelled to see the hand of God at every turn. It's not a coincidence that a young Jewish woman named Esther has become queen to a rather foolish and narcissistic King Xerxes in Babylon around 479 BC. Tens of thousands of Jews have made the decision to not return to the Holy Land, and they've made their home in and around Susa, which is in modern-day Iraq. It's not by accident that Esther has been raised by a faithful Jew named Mordecai. That's her uncle, whom Esther continues to respect and have a relationship with even after becoming queen. The placement of our characters in the castle and at the castle gates truly has been divinely directed. In fact, Mordecai even ruminates that it is perhaps for a time such as this that Esther even became queen. We have learned that Uncle Mordecai foiled a plot to assassinate the king. We have the king completely forgetting about this event until he asks for some light bedtime reading and is reminded of the fact that Mordecai was the one who saved his life. We have the introduction of our antagonist, Haman, who has been promoted to a position of power and prominence and expects everyone to bow down to him. It has become Haman's life mission to annihilate the Jews because Mordecai will not bow down to him. Haman, we have learned, is an extremely arrogant man who measures his self-worth by the power or influence he thinks he has over others. He cannot accept anyone as his equal. When Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman in submission, Haman became consumed with hatred for him. As a little background, history tells us that Haman's ancestors were the Amalekites, who were long-standing enemies of the Jews. So it appears that Haman had this generational hatred for the Jewish people. Subsequently, Haman has convinced King Xerxes that it's in the king's best interest to get rid of all of the Jews because they're not obeying his laws and therefore can't be trusted. The date set for this destruction of the Jews was decided by casting lots called Pure, P-U-R. And it's been widely publicized that this was going to happen and Mordecai has alerted Queen Esther about this evil plot of Haman's. In our last lesson, we have Esther, at the risk of great personal peril, 
approaching the king unannounced. Fortunately, King Circe extends to her the gold scepter, and she's allowed to make her request. But we're caught off guard because instead of Esther making her plea before the king to not exterminate all the Jews, which would include saving her own life, she instead has asked the king and Haman to a dinner party. The first party was so successful that she's asked them to come back the next night. Meanwhile, the king, having discovered that he's overlooked rewarding Mordecai for saving his life, has insisted that Haman, who thought the king wanted to honor himself and so therefore gave the king fantastic ideas about how to publicly honor someone, Haman had to parade Mordecai throughout the city, publicly announcing, quote, this is what the king does for those whom he is well pleased, unquote. Of course, the king has no idea that Mordecai is Jewish. And the king has no idea that Haman was about to request that Mordecai be impaled on a 50 cubit high pike before the next dinner party. We as the readers are given much more information than any of our story's characters so that we can see God's hand at work in each and every turn of events. Even when God is hidden, he is at work. We have noted that God's name is never mentioned implicitly in this book, but we truly see his handiwork throughout this story, don't we? Just because we may not call out in an event as a God thing doesn't mean it isn't. Let's return to our story. Haman returns home dejected because he just had to publicly honor his nemesis, Mordecai. Haman explains this to his wife and friends to gain their sympathy. Now in our story, eunuchs from the castle have arrived to escort Haman to the second dinner party with the King Xerxes and Queen Esther. And today we open up our story with chapter seven verses one through four in the book of Esther. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked again, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. At this point, 
The king may not quite catch on to what Esther's talking about. Who are your people, he might be thinking. King Xerxes, we know, is quite enamored with his wife, and he's also feeling pretty good and pretty generous after drinking wine. So he again has offered his wife this wild promise of, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. So at this point, he's got to be thinking, who has threatened you? The Bible continues. Esther chapter 7, verses 5 through 6. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. Esther said, An adversary and an enemy. This vile Haman. Can't you just see Esther pointing her fingers at Haman? Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. I think perhaps this is the biggest understatement of the Bible. Oh my gosh, don't you just want to be a fly on the wall at this point? What does Haman's face look like? Is he looking around for a way to flee? What wild thoughts must be running through his mind? The story continues, Esther chapter 7, verses 7 through 10. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. I like that detail about him leaving his wine. I guess that demonstrates just how upset he was. We continue. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai who spoke up to help the king. The king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided, unquote. Oh, wow. All right, a few explanations. First, when I just read, they covered Haman's face. This was a Persian custom. A veil was placed over Haman's face because he was condemned to death. And the tradition was that kings refused to look upon the face of a condemned person. Do you see how Haman's hatred and evil plotting turned against him? He was hanged on the very gallows he had built for Mordecai. Proverbs 26 verse 27 reminds us that a person who digs a pit for others will fall into it themselves. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it. If someone rolls a stone, it will roll back on them. Now, this is the end of Haman, but not the end of the story. How many of you, be honest, cheered when Haman was killed. Our initial reaction is to 
say he got what he deserved, right? Ah, but the Bible invites us to dig deeper. How much of Haman really is in each of us? Do we desire to control others? Are we threatened when others don't appreciate us the way we think they should? What about seeking revenge when our pride is attacked? As with all Bible stories, as adults, we need to dig deeper into what that moral message is. Here in this story, we need to pause to confess these attitudes to God and ask him to replace them with an attitude of forgiveness. Whose justice do we seek? Remember, God's justice will prevail. Well, aren't you curious as to what happens next? King Xerxes gives Queen Esther Haman's entire estate. In Persia, when a man did what Haman had done and was executed for his crimes, everything he possessed became the property of the government. In this case, the king was the recipient. The king was very sorry for the trouble that Haman had caused Esther, and so Haman gives the property to the queen. Then, because Esther explains to the king that she's related to Mordecai, remember the king doesn't know this, the king called Mordecai into the castle and presents Mordecai with his signet ring. And then Esther appoints her uncle Mordecai to run Haman's estate. When Esther admitted that she was a Jew, she also reveals to the king that Mordecai had raised her as if he were her own father. Mordecai had been greatly honored recently for saving the life of the king, as we know. So it's a logical conclusion that he would take Haman's place now as number two in the country serving the king. Well, that's a happy ending. But wait, remember how I told you that a king's decree is a decree forever, even if it's a bad one. We still have this doomsday approaching when all the Jews are to be killed. Let's look at Esther chapter 8, verses 3 through 17. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman, which he had devised against the Jews. The king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she rose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it's the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman the Agite devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther 
and to Mordecai the Jew. Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now, write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. What just happened? Well, King Xerxes has given permission to Mordecai to write a new decree that's going to offset the first decree without actually canceling it. I know this sounds confusing, but follow what happens next. Verse 9. At once, the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Saban. They wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps and the governors and the nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people, and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves. To destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and their children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and purple robes of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor in every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them, unquote. Do you see what happened? The Jews have been given written permission to defend themselves Many Persians, now out of fear of the Jews, have themselves become Jewish. The date was set, the 13th day of the 12th month of Adar, 
was to be the day that the Jews were going to be destroyed. But the tables have been turned, and now the Jews get the upper hand over those who hated them. And as an interesting twist of fate, the nobles, the governors, and the king's administrators all end up helping the Jews because of Uncle Mordecai's great power and influence. With the king's permission, the battle ends up continuing into another day, and in total, 75,000 of the Jews' enemies were slain. From that day forward, on the 14th and 15th day of Adar, a celebration called Purim, P-U-R-I-M, Purim, is held for all Jewish people to remember that the Pur that Haman cast for their destruction actually ends up being a day of great celebration for the Jews. Now, Purim was celebrated on Monday, March 9th and Tuesday, March 10th of this year while I was visiting Israel. During the celebration of Purim, the story of Esther is read and children typically dress as the various characters in the story. Although I have to say that while I was in Israel during Purim, we actually saw lots of university students in costumes that were more like superheroes and more like Halloween costumes. The idea of costumes is to represent that things are not always as they seem, which certainly summarizes the twists and turns in the story of Esther, doesn't it? Well, again, because of COVID, this year's celebration of Purim in Israel was really limited. But traditionally, during this time, it's really cool. They give gifts to the poor, they read the story, they eat a festive meal, they give food gifts, and they eat these triangular-shaped cookies. I actually have a picture of them on studentofthebible.com. And they are cookies to represent the villain in our story, Haman. I just find that so fascinating. I hope you can agree that in the story of Esther, the sovereignty and faithfulness of God permeates each scene. And we can concur that nothing is truly coincidental. God's sovereignty is best summarized in Mordecai's exhortation to Esther when he says, and who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Yeah, Esther is a pretty entertaining historical story, but it also reveals important Bible truths about how and why the Jews survived such an overwhelming threat. First, again, divine providence. While we have said God's name is not mentioned in the book, but the book of Esther clearly shows that even when God is most hidden, he is still working to protect his people. Second, 
the role of human responsibility. Esther and Mordecai show great initiative and courage. Their actions are obviously significant, and this is important for us to remember. The providence of God does not negate the responsibility of people to act with courage and resolve when circumstances require it. And then finally, the absurdity of wickedness. King Xerxes and Haman were important people who had considerable power, but the story of Esther often causes laughter at their expense. The proud people of this world are not nearly as powerful as they think. When they oppose God's people, they bring about their own destruction. And God laughs at such people. This is actually described in Psalm 2, in verses 1 through 6. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 6. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain, unquote. As we look at the story of Esther, we can all agree, life can be hard. Difficult times happen, pain can't be avoided. But when life doesn't make sense, do you turn to God or away from God? Let the book of Esther encourage you that God is always present. Jesus called us friends, and the Holy Spirit, he said, is our helper. Let the story of Esther be a source of encouragement for you. Trust and obey, just as Esther did, and watch God silently weave all events for his glory and for our good. He is always with us, even when we think he's not. Have a blessed day.